Rumors Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nimmer's Netter, just talking to teachers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening everybody and welcome to this episode of Nailers Natter. This week I'm joined by Gary Orbin and Gary Orbin is a director of SEND for a multi-academy trust having worked as a SENCO in mainstream primary and secondary schools leading an outstanding provision. With a strong mindset of inclusion, his work as director of SEND has supported schools out to special measures and towards outstanding for their SEND provision. Alongside Send Duties, he writes the sendmatters.co.uk blog and tweets as at sendmattersuk. He's a contributing author to Great Expectations by David Bartram OBE and wrote the Understanding the Senco Role course for Guide Education. He has reviewed and supported improvements to SEND provision within schools in Sheffield, Portsmouth and Kent and is presented on SEND at numerous educational conferences and events. Gary is a former pastoral leader and is still a practicing secondary teacher. Gary completed his Master's in Special and Inclusive Education at the UCL Institute of Education. The book we're talking about today with Gary is The Lone Senko. Research by the Seaside is back. Yep, you heard it right. Research Ed Blackpool returns for its third year, following enormously successful conferences in 2018 and 2019. Now, as you'll know, both of those conferences sold out pretty quickly, so book early to avoid disappointment. As always, expect for an exciting day packed full of research-informed practice from speakers from both primary and secondary backgrounds. The date for your diary, Saturday 9th of July 2022, and the location is South Shore Academy, St Anne's Road, Blackpool. That's Research at Blackpool 2022. Hope to see you there. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailers Natter the book. Ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Nailers Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022. Talking to teachers about educational books, why we love them and how we use them in our classrooms. With guest authors, publishers, podcasters and of course, teachers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening everybody and welcome to this episode of Nailers Natter. So I'm delighted to be joined by Gary Orbin. Welcome to the podcast, Gary. Thanks very much, Phil. Great to be here. Yes, great to be here indeed. So we're recording during the Easter holidays. So thank you for giving up your time for this. And the book we're talking about is The Lone Send Co. Okay, so we're going to get into the gentle introductory question first. Gary, so if you just tell listeners a little bit about you and your journey in education to this point. Yeah, thanks, Phil. I'm a secondary drama teacher by background, turned head of year, turned um, Senko, essentially, is my, my main journey to, to, to the world of Send. Um, I've taught in London and Hong Kong, um, live in London at the moment, and yeah, I've, uh, currently work three days a week um, leading SEND provision for a multi-academy trust of primary and secondary schools, all mainstream, um, and I'm two days a week seconded to the Education Endowment Foundation as their content specialist for SEND. And then in a bit of time last year, I wrote The Lone Senko, and I know we're going to talk about that. 
We are indeed. And what a book it is, listener. Now, let me tell you, obviously, Gary's been kind enough to send the book across. So I've had a look through and I had a read through. And somebody who's uh, previously been responsible for line managing um, the SendCut, and just a shout out to Karen, who's our SendCut at school, is superb. But this book has everything. This book has everything that you would possibly need to know if you were thinking about going for the role, if you're currently doing the role, or if someone like me who is line managing that role to give a better understanding. It's got an appreciation understanding of the legislation. It's got concrete advice. It's got tips. It's got all sorts of different things that you might want to look at. So, you know, this must have taken a great deal of time, Gary, and it's brilliant that it's out there for people who are interested in this area. Thanks, Phil. That's really kind of you to say so. I appreciate it. And um, yeah, I've had some some nice feedback. And there's always, you know, when something is sort of finished and going to print, you think, oh, I'd love to add that, love to add that. And it's just kind of got to wait now for the next version of it at some point in the future. But um, but yeah, I'm, re- I'm really pleased with it and with the feedback I've got. And it really came from um, the fact, as I think I say on the back cover, that, you know, if you teach French, then you're line managed by the head of French who knows French and knows French teaching and can give you tips on your teaching and everything. And if you're in, you know, I'm, I'm no doubt you do a wonderful job of line managing a Senko or, or did so, Phil. But often people, um, the Senko is the most skilled person in terms of send uh, knowledge and skills in the school. But actually, where do they go to when there's something they stumble across that they don't know? And also, most Senkos, I think, and I was certainly one of them, start the job and don't have a Scooby-Doo that they need to, really, relative to the, the size and breadth of the role. I mean, I, I had an interest in SEND. I'd always taught students with SEND in my classes, among others, and I had some pastoral experience. But actually, you know, it really feels like you're thrown into that role often. And, you know, the worst case scenario, it's not uncommon for someone to say, you know, in your assistant headship now, oh, by the way, could you please be Senko as well? And, and you know, people come to that role in lots of different ways, I think. And certainly most people come to it without huge sort of academic or practical experience um, specifically within SEND. So I think it's a real, what, what I wanted to achieve was try and get, Lots of things, not everything, but lots of things in one place with lots of signposting um, just to give people, a, you know, a head start, especially if they're new. But but I've heard nice feedback from people who, who aren't new as well in the role just to go, oh, good, that's that's sort of here in one place and, and up to date. So. Well, the two things to address there, Gary. So the first thing is the feedback has been fantastic. And obviously, I do a bit of research ahead of the podcast and I've been through the reviews um, for the book on Amazon. And, you know, you have got some fantastic reviews and, and really well deserved. And the second point is I absolutely did not do a good job of line managing Karen as a send go. Uh, and, you know, obviously, she wouldn't say that because she's far too nice and far too kind. But it's exactly what you said there, Gary, you know. I've been asked to do that role and I haven't got any real experience other than like yourself of teaching students with SEND or, you know, kind of working with some of those classes over the years. I didn't have any kind of experience and it's fortunate and lucky for me that she was almost skilling me up in terms of understanding of the role to be able to in some way support her. And that's why this book is great. And I think it's got parallels with some of one of my other sort of passions, which is being the DSL in school. Mm. You know, I was put in, in charge of being the DSL um, two years ago. And like you, you know, I didn't really know what I didn't know about the mm. role. And it's taken me two years to get to, you know, a basic understanding of the key parts of Safeguard. And it's very much the same with Scent. But what I think we should do, Gary, is someone should write a book on um, on being the DSL as well. I think that would be very, very yes. useful. Perhaps, yeah. perhaps we should uh, we should get that get that uh, proposition submitted to a publisher very quickly. Anyway, yeah, I, I'll anyway. leave that to someone else. Yeah, and I think around line <laughs> managing Senko, actually, that that's a real tricky challenge, as you say, because you just feel. I think a typical experience of line managing a Senko is just sort of knowing. You know, when you don't know as much as you know that you need to know. Um, Actually, then the, the easiest thing to do is just leave that person to it and to go, can I help? You know, what kind of support do you need? But again, as, as a, if you're the point of being a good manager is, is 
identifying when someone needs support when they don't know that themselves, isn't it really? And if you don't, um, yeah. So I hope the book is useful for people working with Senkos as well as, as well as Senkos or an aspiring Senkos. So thanks. It definitely is. Okay, so first question, Gary, if we can. So we've talked a lot about line managing the uh, the Senko, but what makes a great Senko? Well, I wrote I wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago arguing that I think that everyone should want to be a Senko. So um, despite the fact that we sort of started the podcast going, what a role, and you're off on your own, and the title of the book really alludes to the <laughs> sometimes loneliness and solitude of the role. But actually what, what I'd love and what I think the world of SEND really needs, but also what education needs, is for sort of hungry people on their way up to SLT and, and you know, headship roles and things to be going, well, maybe the Senko is a really important developmental role for me. And it's not going to help children with SEND if people come in and do it for, you know, a term or just for the CV or for those wrong reasons. But I think in the way that people might be ahead of year or take on a head of department, not because they want to do it forever, but because they see it as an essential building sort of step up to, to SLT, to headship. Actually, it would be great for students with SEND if more people wanted to do that, because then you'd have senior leaders in schools with real, who wouldn't need that book because they'd have real experience themselves of that Senko role and of an understanding um, that's sort of research informed, but also practice informed around what works for students with SEND. So I really hope that it's something when you see people going, yep, that head of year role is going to be a really important development post for me. I'm going to do it for three years and it's going to be a step for me towards an assistant headship. You know, I really hope that people start to see the Senko role in that way because where some roles might give you purely, pretty much purely pastoral experience or purely academic experience, actually the Senko role does both. And rather than just being in one pocket of the school, like a head of year or a head of department, actually it gives you um, breadth across the whole school and you're working from either early years to year six or from year, um, you know, year seven up to 13. Or, um, so there's, there's there's great, you know, benefits of doing a Senka role, having that on your CV. And of course it comes with, um, whereas as in a DSL role, Phil, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but actually... I think that people are often left to um, have little bits of statutory training and then just work it out yourself and find your own bits and find the right book to read or um, statutory gu guidance to find. But actually with the Senka role, obviously you have to do a third of a master's with it. So it's a, and it obviously clearly that would be paid for by school. So there's a great sort of professional development reason. But but to come back to your question about what makes a great Senko, um, I think Senkos have to be advocates for students with SEND primarily. So Often there's a lot of negative talk about students with SEND. And I don't think anyone goes into teaching and goes, oh, these students with SEND, you know, I'm not saying that. But I think that people, there's just a, a negative narrative around too many students with SEND when things get difficult. And, and that, I understand that because people, you know, people get tired and stressed. And often students with SEND are the ones who are making your lesson planning a bit trickier, your lesson delivery a bit trickier, your exam results sometimes a little less positive. Um, so it's, it's advocating and being positive and that positive voice, voice around school and, and then showing calmness when things aren't going well. And when there is a whether it's a parent who's very um, anxious about something, an element of something going on in the child's life, it's not to, to, to play down their anxiety, but it's to be the calm responder to it and, and not to perhaps um, respond to their email immediately, not to respond to a history teacher immediately who says they, this child can't be in my class, but just to sort of go right. Let's be reflective and calm and positive and, and come up with a plan here. And then, I mean, I, I could go on for ages, Phil, clearly. But I think another, another um, just to add a couple of things, perhaps, is is being bold, really. So it's about, um, it's. I remember when I was early in my Senko career, going into an assistant head teacher's English class and feeling totally out of my depth because he was a great teacher. 
And I was there as a sort of supposed to be wearing this hat of someone who can give him really good advice about what he needs to do next. And I sat in this room and just thought, he's a you know more experienced and really good teacher. What am I supposed to say? And what I sh- looking back, what I should have said is, I'm really pleased with what you're doing, particularly these three things. Can you please talk to the whole English department about it so they all see it? But what I felt was this need to, to sort of take on this um, role of expert that actually, you know, it shouldn't be a one man band. And that last thing for me is, is about perspective. So... Um, often, I think in many roles in school, but particularly through a Vicenko role, you start the morning with your to-do list and there'll be some teaching on there. But And I think it's really important that Senkos do teach manageable amounts of, of timetable lessons. But actually, you know, often as a Senko, you're a little bit um, free is the wrong word, but, you know, you set your own agenda a little bit more sometimes. Um, and you might have 10 things on your list and you get through none of them that day because um, actually, you know, life happens and school happens and unforeseeable things happen. But it's to know that that's okay. That's the job. And sometimes we we all think, you know, let's be strategic, let's plan, let's work out what's most important. But um, but it's sort of going actually doing the job is picking up often and all those things that are slightly unforeseeable and being in classrooms and around corridors and being a sort of visible face around the school. And what that doesn't do is it doesn't get all your paperwork for the local authority in a neat order. And it might not get all your emails down and it might not get your exam access arrangements, paperwork, winning any medals. But actually, if you focus on do parents, staff and pupils rate my leadership of the provision for students was end in my school, then I think you're doing all right. Even if the, the to do list you made at the beginning of the week isn't quite whittling down in, in the way you hoped it might. Such a great point, Gary, there. And I mean, just picking up on the leadership aspect of it, and I'm just trying to think, and obviously my perspective is only one perspective and my experience might not be reflective of other people's, but I am struggling to think of too many examples of senior leaders that have come through the route having been the Senko in school. I'm talking obviously in secondaries. And quite often this is reflected when we have, you know, a particular thing on an SLT agenda over the years mm. and the senko is then brought into the meeting whereas when you think if you're discussing curriculum or academic um so whether it be subject based or results or whatever mm. it might be on certainly pastoral there's a there's a understanding that there's quite a lot of experience around the table but you're right in saying that you know the senko quite often operates within their own environment and doesn't necessarily then move up to whether it's because they become indispensable mm. i don't know move up to slt Mm. And, and I think it's tricky. There's a very sort of black and white argument, which is stick your Senko on SLT. And I think generally, that's a good point, clearly. You need to have someone thinking about send when the agenda item isn't send, don't you? You know, if it's bringing the Senko can talk about send this week, actually, you want them there going, hang on, if this is our curriculum offer, what does that look like for these students? Or if these are the trips we're running in the summer term, what does that look like for these people? And you need that person thinking about send when no one else is. Um, but actually, if you're a you know a, a teacher fairly early in your career, but have a passion for send, you beca- you know you're given the Senko role, and suddenly you're thrust onto SLT and feel like you have you know many other different hats to wear just by virtue of being a senior leader in a school, actually that can be that can be unhelpful. So I think that argument is slightly black and white. But clearly, you, if you if you're a Senko, not an SLT, you need a really good advocate and someone who is informed. Um, and if that person's you know worn that Senko hat themselves in the past, then that that's really excellent. And I think I think the Every school needs a Senko, and I think that's its greatest strength and um, not quite weakness is overstating it, but um, that's its greatest strength. That's clearly great. Um, But I don't think there are enough people who go into teaching going, send is my thing, and I want to develop within send um, until the the day I, you know, uh, hang up my boots. Um, And I think think that's, that's why we need more 
people going a really good middle leadership position that actually I think sits somewhere between middle and senior leadership often and a great step in people's career. I think if more people went, it's for me and it doesn't have to be for me forever. And um, because I think the fact that every school needs one means we just don't have enough people who um, are those impassioned send is my thing and send will always be my thing type people. And some of the best senkers I work with, actually, they have great relationships with pupils and they're a great teacher. And then anything else can be learned and taught. And I think as long as there's, there's, there's expertise around. So, you know, trusts aren't for everyone. I work in a trust and I think it's really helpful that my role exists so that if I work with and I do this year, some people who are new to the role but they're re- they've got they say sensible things they have a good reputation for classroom teaching and they're they're, they're passionate about teaching and learning and send among other things then, then then they can learn everything they need to learn you know with support with the right support around them and we just need more people who are good teachers and have good relationships with students to go yeah let's let's do this for a period of time it's going to re- be really beneficial for me and really beneficial for for moving our provision forwards in our school nailers natter just talking to teachers great stuff thank you now you mentioned before about the kind of parallels or i kind of mentioned about the parallels with the dsl and one of the things that we are supported by is the amount of legislation that's out there and the amount of legislation that we're aware of and that obviously we have to read and make sure that we provide training for and obviously you know for for myself personally I'm very well supported by a trust who've got safeguarding experts at the very top including you know the the CEO of the trust who provides policies that make it very very easy to work within so as someone who was inexperienced I did find it quite easy to be able to work within that framework and with that legislation but perhaps I'm wrong it's maybe slightly less well-known in terms of legislation that SENCOs are working within. And something you've done in the book is kind of signpost to that. So what key pieces of legislation are most important for the SENCO? Yeah, thanks, Phil. I think within safeguarding, everyone knows that, you know, it's the it's keeping children safe in education and everyone needs to read it and sign that they've read it and that kind of thing. And that's, that's quite right. And I think I know some SENCOs who operate that way for send key legislation as well. And they, you know, all staff will sign a thing in September saying they've read and, and, and what that would be is is the relevant chapter of the Send Code of Practice. So there's, it's a you know, clearly is an enormous document and much of it is aimed at local authorities. But um, if you work in early years, it's chapter five, schools, chapter six, and in FE colleges, chapter seven. Um, and that's really the main sort of, you know, it, it's statutory guidance. So it's not, um, if you read something that is... Um, a, a, a bill often it's trapped in sort of legal speak that means actually okay what does this mean for me day-to-day practice actually the statutory guidance is often a lot friendlier isn't it and I think I would encourage anyone I, I appreciate a lot of the audience to this um, podcast won't be Senkos I'd encourage anyone to read um, that relevant chapter for their setting it takes about 20 minutes some of it you go well, that's aimed at the Senko that's aimed at you know the leader of the school but I can see how this relates to, to me as a leader or as a teacher in our school um, so it's the Send Code of Practice, that statutory guidance from 2015. And the, if you're, you know, if you're hungry for more, the that the guidance comes from the the, the Children and Families Act from 2014. So part three is related to Send and what schools need to do for students with Send. So if the Send Code of Practice and the relevant uh, 20-ish page chapter and that doesn't whet your appetite enough. It's going back to the Children and Families Act and going, actually, these are the statutory duties. Um, Send Code of Practice is statutory guidance that includes some must and includes some should, and then it's about working out well what works, you know, it, for the shoulds, what works with the children I teach, with the subjects I lead, etc. Um, and then finally, the Equality Act. So um, obviously, there's, there's the protected characteristics within the Equality Act. One of those being disability, and that's the legal framework where students with disabilities are um, 
you know, have those legal protections for, for certain things and for schools to provide reasonable adjustments, etc. Thank you. And I mean, in terms of popularity of the book, I think it does show that this is going to have quite a wide readership. And I know that you've obviously tailored it to um, the Senko in certain areas. But also, I think when I read it, I just thought, wow, there's a lot of stuff that perhaps I've got a surface understanding of, but I wouldn't necessarily like to ask for fear of thinking, well, mm-hmm. I probably should have known that. And I think that's where the book is really useful. And one of those things, Gary, is around EHCP. So everyone who's listening is saying, well, of course, I understand what an EHCP is. Of course, I understand the process, but you know, I'm going to be honest enough and say, yes, I understand what one is, but in terms of, you know, the number of meetings that need to be had regarding that, in terms of the support of parents, the support of school, the support of funding, I may not be across all of the details. So for listeners' benefits of those people who, you know, might be um, more wary to ask, what is Mm. an EHCP and what the teachers and SENCOs need to know about them? Okay, thanks. Yeah, so yeah, aiming my answer to um, um, there'll be nothing I need to tell Senkos about EHCPs quite rightly, but like you say, everyone it needs whole school understanding of what they are and what the duties are around them. So yeah, they replaced statements of SEN. So people who've been teaching a while will know very much about statements, and they disappeared uh, in over a three-year process between I think twenty fourteen and seventeen, and were replaced with these things, EHCPs. And the, there's a few sort of reasons behind it. Um, they they incorporate not only the child's educational needs, but health and social care needs as well. So they'll all be listed on there. And of course, as an audience of educationalists, it'll be mostly relevant, those educational outcomes and educational needs. But it's also, you know, it will be vital to understand a child's health needs in some cases, in terms of sort of from a safety point of view. Uh, and it'll be useful to understand some social care needs um, in terms of, you know, those wider aspects of involving that child in school, for example, um, for some in some cases so it's a statutory document and um, it gives the child a legal entitlement to certain um bits of provision in some time in, in it will also name their school placement on there so it will say the name of the school that they've gone to and um the process is the school gets consulted and has two weeks to respond about whether they can meet the need it's not as simple as saying no we can't meet the need and that's the end of it there's actually you know there's, there's some legal stuff underneath that that i don't think is useful for the podcast but is covered in the book um, uh, the statements were written with a bit of a negative bent. Some people might might disagree with that, but it was, you know, really about what the child can't do. And they replaced it. And I hope it's more than just a change of wording. It should be a sort of slight shift in mindset as well of moving towards outcomes. So what should the child be or young person be able to do um, by the end of, you know, time X, which is often the end of the key stage they're currently in. So what um, in that way, this was written framed more positively by the end of year um, six, the child will be able to take part in reciprocal conversations um, with sentences of up to up to five words verbally or something. So they're supposed to be smart. I think the problem with smart is sometimes you get um, overly wordy and lose the sort of thread of it, really. But um, they are, yeah, it, it outcomes, statutory document that outlines the needs the child has, the outcomes being sought for them and with them, and then therefore the provision that needs to be in place for them. So that is that is where they go to school, but it's also what that school or college or AP setting or wherever um, needs to do in order to, to meet those needs. And it should have um, child and parent voice at the centre. So um, the child and young person should have a way of, of, of having their voices heard, having their... Um, a, you know, sharing what they want, essentially, and what their aspirations are for the future. And likewise, parents should be involved in that process as well. 
Um, it's from 0 to 25. So um, it, statements finished at 16, but these continue. As long as the child or young person is in certain forms of education, they can continue until the year in which the child turned, the end of the year in which the child has turned 25. Um, sorry, the young person has turned 25. So um, it is, uh, yeah, much, much more focused on, on children's voice, on parents' voice, hopefully. Um, and then in terms of the second part of your question, Phil, was about what do teachers really need to know about them? Um, so... If you're a primary uh, teacher, I'm assuming that you're going to see your pupils all day. I know not all schools operate in that ma- in that manner, but essentially you're going to you know you know your pupils very well and be their main class teacher. Then I would say that there's no reason not to read the whole thing um, and to go back to your senko and have a discussion about it and say I think what this means for me in my practice is this, and hopefully that's something that a senko in a school has really done that already. And if if you're a senior leader in a primary school, then I think it's speaking to the senko around how do you make these often unwieldy documents that might be 12, 15, 20 pages long in some cases, how do you make them um, something that teachers who aren't send experts necessarily, but need to do, you know, need to do a good job by your pupils. Actually, how can you make it meaningful and accessible? What does the Senko do to potentially condense it? And that's even more needed in secondary, of course, where, you know, often teachers will come across multiple classes in a week. So actually, if we're asking all teachers to read all the HCPs for all pupils, I think that's probably not a very helpful message. Um, I think it may be in exceptional cases that that happens, but actually the primary um, uh, thing in secondary schools, I think, is for the Senko to be really good at condensing that. And we call it in our schools a pupil profile, um, but whatever you call it, could be called it's still an IEP or a pupil passport or whatever. It should really say, what what does that pupil, um, what, what does the teachers need to know about that pupil? And that doesn't have to be just things that they find hard, but what do they need to know about that pupil and what do they need to do to meet that pupil's needs? Um, so, uh, and then also what are the targets? And we can call them targets or outcomes, but essentially what are we trying to bring that child or young person closer towards so um hopefully the senko in your school is really good at going how can i condense this really lengthy information and these seven page speech and language reports and this five page ed psych report and the ehcp and go all right what's at the heart of good teaching that that teacher needs to know without being overwhelmed with knowing everything um and if you don't have a senko doing that then maybe teachers do need to read the ehcps for schools but i think i think generally that level of input is unsustainable so um it's and, and school by the way in terms of just a last comment on legal things schools have um a duty to to um, make best endeavors to meet the provision so if you're a teacher and you think um this ehcp has 25 bullet points of things i need to be doing it shouldn't be a stick to beat teachers with it should be a conversation to have um, and it's right that it's a legal document. It doesn't mean you can do all those things all the time and they're, they're all the best practice in every lesson. And if there's one bit of scaffolding that's listed in EHCP as a bullet point that the child needs, it's in that young person's interest that we try to remove that over time and that we try to increase their independence over time. And I think that the way to, to help sort of the thing to guide you with as a teacher in that having that difficult decision of do I follow the EHCP to the letter, which is a legal document, or do I do use my professional judgment to, to think about the progress the child's making, the support they're having and what they need next is always about having a conversation with the Senko and where possible or appropriate with the parent and going, this is why I think this bullet point is now unhelpful for this young person and I would like to change it. It gets reviewed annually, but of course, as teachers, we need to be more adaptive, more responsive than only making changes to what we do annually for students with the ACP. So I think it's about even though there's that legal document and that list of must do this, must do this, it's always about going what's best. Let's go and have a chat with the Senko or have a chat with the parent or even with the young people in some persons, in some cases, if we're not too sure. 
Great. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for that detailed answer. Um, Really, really appreciate that. In terms of the EHCP, they also come with financial funding. And I know it can be quite simplistic to be kind of input in and and output, right? Well, the money comes in to be spent on this child. So the SENCO is going to have that money to directly impact on the education of that child. But is that too simplistic a role, uh, sorry, a view? And what money does the school receive for SEND? And and is that budget the SENCOs to spend? Yeah. um and as all you know, as I'm sure ninety percent of your guests on here <laughs> try and never give you a straight answer, I'm sure, Phil. So um a few things within that then. So every child, it's ORPU, isn't it? Age weighted pupil unit funding, uh, bums on seats essentially, and that's that's for everyone. So for a child, whether they have send an EHCP or not, obviously there's some money that comes to school to meet their needs and pay teacher salaries and all the rest of it. Um, and then the school gets a notional funding. So every local authority sets their own formula for what this is for their notional send budget. Um, but it's likely to consist of um, for a secondary school, what's the what were the what did your pupils coming in get in year six? Um, what level of deprivation is there in your local area? Um, how big an EAL cohort do you have? That kind of thing. So those kind of um, those kind of factors are, are built into what each school gets as their notional send budget. But that's not ring fence. So generally, you know, as a head teacher, I think most head teachers, sorry, not as a head teacher, but I think most head teachers are going, um, well, yeah, but, you know, we're, we're, that pays the Senko salary. And that means that we can have slightly smaller classes for a couple of our lower sets or you know, the things that typically won't be, this is purely for send, but this goes into the pot with a bit of a send bent and um, and, and different head teachers will manage that um, budget in a different way, clearly. But it is not ring fence is the headline there for that notional send budget. And then, and then there's top up funding, like you say, sometimes called high needs funding, sometimes called top up funding. I think there's a bit of a myth about EHCPs that they always um, guarantee a child a teaching assistant in class. And just about that, there's a couple of things. Number one, that's not the case um, at all. Um, many local authorities will write EHCPs. Um, without making specific reference to a teaching assistant. Um, the sort of cynic in me would go, that's a way that they don't have to fund X amount of TA hours. But it's also, I think, about going, um, TA hours are not the best um, sort of economy for some pupils to make progress. Now, there are just a sort of careful with my wording around that. Teaching assistants provide absolutely reasons why um, hundreds of students I've worked with have been able to succeed in school, had left with qualifications, have gotten through primary school without exclusions, have got, you know, have attended, have come into school at the beginning of the day and stayed throughout the day. So so I have enormous respect for the for the work TAs do. And that was never more so than during the pandemic, I think. But um, but just about that, TAs are not the answer to every child all the time, are they? And what we need to be doing around teach around, around sort of send provision is looking at our spending a bit more cleverly than that and looking at our provision a bit more cleverly than that and going, okay, in this class, in this subject, for this child at this moment, a second adult's really needed. And we're going to instruct that second adult or request that that second adult removes themselves from having a seat next to that child as much as is possible. And I'm I'm, I'm a realist in that that sometimes that just isn't possible. And a second adult to support focus, to deal with um, physical health needs, or for a range of reasons, is just essential right then. But actually... um, it isn't just about um, TA hours. And I think thinking about top up or high needs funding for pupils, it has moved away in most local authorities from 25 TA hours per week to something that is, these are their needs. This is the provision listed on the EHCP. So we've banded them at X. And that means the school receives X thousand pounds a year in order to meet their needs. Um, In my experience, 
Um, there's always a difference between what the local, or almost always a difference in what the local authority provides and what the school would like or what the parents think is needed. Um, and so there's often a bit of a, a back and forth, as you can imagine there anyway. Um, last thing on that is that the schools are generally speaking expected to find the first £6,000 per year from their own budgets or rather from their notional send budget anyway. Um, that's not there's no legal reason why that should be the case. So actually, it's something that Senko should push back on. But it's also a, a rule of thumb that if you can work within that, there's also, you know, you want to be a pragmatist, think, how can we show that we spent £6,000 before then applying for more money? That's the pragmatic answer. It's not quite the, the sort of legal framework for send funding anyway. The, the, the last thing to say on that, I suppose, is, you know, if you if this child needs a lot of help, um, and the local authority decides that that means £8,000 of help per year. That may sound like a lot, but most rules of thumb from local authorities are that the school will be spending £6,000 from their own budgets first but, and only receiving two. So, yeah, so it's, not, it's not quite straightforward. I think there's a job for Senko to go, are we spending our money um, on the provision that really helps meet the needs of our pupils? And that means having um, some teaching assistants. It might mean going, let's look at, a, we need to probably have an extra day of counselling per week or get some speech and language therapist expertise or train one of our TAs to be an ELSA, an emotional literacy support assistant, or even getting some added days of an educational psychologist per year. And so thinking a bit more creatively than just money equals TAs, which is sometimes the magic, sort of not the magic answer, but sometimes exactly what the right thing to spend money on is and sometimes isn't. It's such a great answer, Gary. And again, you know, you think that we go through our day in school not having necessarily time or even access to to send course to be able to ask all of those questions. And, you know, having listened to you there, and obviously, you know, I've been doing this job for a, a long, long time, but I was thinking, right, oh, there was a lot of information there that maybe I wasn't necessarily aware of. And I think that that's really important that particularly teachers do hear that from the send code don't they in terms of the, you know the inputs and outputs right so EHCP should equal TA and I echo everything that you said about TAs we have a lot of TAs within school probably higher numbers than a lot of schools do because we have a lot of students with EHCPs in our school and we we do have um, specialist classes for some of those so we have some nurture groups across 7 to 11 um, to, to cater for that but it's like you said it's not just um, teaching assistants we're very lucky that we've got access to trusts uh, educational psychologist for a certain number of days a week and, and all the other things that you talked about there but i just think the way that you've explained it you know just for teachers to understand but also if you're going into that job is really really useful to understand you know how you can actually use that money wisely and what how you can help to inform the decisions that the school makes as well yeah and i, I know that there's i know you're very sort of evidence and research led around uh, you know on the podcast and lots of your audience are people who are sort of you know real research bods um, and, and that TA, there's lots of evidence out there around good TA deployment is now. I know it's a slight sidetrack from what we discussed, but um, money often sort of is related to TAs. And there's there's great evidence in there around um, TAs offering support for things like teacher workload and sort of engagement and those sorts of benefits of pupils. Um, there's good evidence in there from the EEF around the benefits of TAs leading interventions um, for you know within certain parameters around training and resourcing and uh, when when it happens how often how long that kind of thing um, but actually the evidence around um, children making better academic progress as a result of TA input in class is still not there so it's worth adults just I think teachers knowing that particularly and going okay what why might that be what are the pitfalls for me and those those pitfalls from great researchers like Rob Webster and others at at, at, at UC, when he was at UCL really are about um 
about um, dependency and about learnt helplessness and about giving too much help and spoon feeding. And actually what teachers need to know is I need to have a really good relationship with my teaching assistant where we take feedback from each other, where we have a bit of time to reflect on how it's going, where the TA is has the um, capacity in terms of time and resource to have the curriculum materials in advance, to know what we're doing and know from the teacher how they would like to use them within that um, subject. And then for the teacher to know just as much about the child and their needs or a group of children and their needs as the TA does. And then you get, you know, fantastic work happening in class because it's it's a partnership and it's, uh, you know, it can support academic progress amongst other things. I think um, where where the research hasn't sort of caught up and, and shown academic progress for students as a result of having a TA, it's just sort of shown the opposite. I think it's those practices that have been the problem. It's that like I said, that that dependency, that learned helplessness, spoon feeding, getting into fast. You know, some of the best learning happens when a child is struggling, doesn't it? When that child is, you know, you can see the cogs not quite turning and they're looking for that, going back to their book or going, you know, just trying to find out what, how can that equal that and how can I get from here to there? How can I struggle over this word or sentence? But actually the, the magic is in the struggle, isn't it? And the magic is in a child finding something hard. And I think previously deployment of TAs, as they were instructed to do by teachers and by the Senko and by leaders, was go and help. And of course, if you're told to go and help, then what you want to do is, is as a conscientious member of staff, is be really helpful. But actually, sometimes that means holding back rather than um, rather than going straight in and uh, and uh, and providing answers or helping a child get the answer down on paper. Whereas actually, what they need to be doing is supporting them to do the thinking and the learning um, rather than task completion. Thank you, Gary. And what you've talked about in the book as well is around, you know, you mentioned your work with the EEF in terms of that evidence and, and research based work that you're doing. So I was fascinated to see that you've got a section in, the, in one of the chapters talking about cognitive science. So how does the work that we've all been kind of immersed in the last couple of years around cognitive science, how does that link to students with SEND? So it, this, for me, they're really natural partners. So um, if we're, and again, it doesn't answer every challenge. I don't think cognitive science is the answer to every question. But if we look at it um, uh, in terms of, I'll talk EEF um, evidence for a second um, and, and then move on perhaps. But the, the, the EEF um, released an SEN in mainstream guidance report in, in March 2020. What better time to release something than in March 2020 when um, when then the following week, I think every school in the country was partially closed. But um, uh, but but it, it had five recommendations within it. And, and people on this podcast will, will know, I'm sure, that the EEF's part of its role is generating evidence, but part of its role is synthesising existing evidence and being a bit of a quality assurer of that evidence and, and, and synthesising good, relevant evidence that can help um, SEN in mainstream schools so that it doesn't claim to be experts in every sort of student with um, profound and multiple learning difficulties. But for SEN in mainstream schools, it said there are five recommendations and one of them is explicitly around um, high quality teaching. So recommendation three is ensure access to high quality teaching. And I think too many Senkos, and I've done it myself, are guilty of going, yeah, high quality teaching, off you go, without giving an evidence-informed explanation of what they mean, or without quite knowing what they mean, or without knowing where that evidence base sits in terms of SEND. Or I think that the greater crime from um, SENCOs, and again, I, I speak having done this myself, is to overload staff and go, children with autism, here's eight strategies. Um, children with speech and language needs, eight strategies here. You've got some dyslexic children in your class, here's eight strategies. And the teacher's left going, well, well what is it? Because I can't do all those things at once. Um, so either I sort of try and do everything and, and end up failing at some point and getting, you know, burning out at some point, 
or I have need to have a core of high-quality, inclusive strategies that I can then use as my sort of core of my teaching, and we can call it inclusive teaching, adaptive teaching. I don't really, it doesn't, I don't feel it matters too much what we call it, but we start with this core, and that by meeting the needs of most pupils, including pupils who send most of the time, we can then go, ah, yes, but this child has a visual impairment. They need things on a size 28 font. And there is an exception here that there's no getting around and I'm going to do it because it's their need. But actually, the majority of needs for all pupils, including those ascend, can be met with these sort of core of inclusive teaching strategies. And the EEF's um, e- 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 sorry, evidence um, synthesizing then, then found that there are five particular evidence-based approaches that it says that teachers should, should, should take on. And there's a real link with cognitive science. So if I just talk about those five, I list those five first and then go into detail on a couple. So the first one is explicit instruction. There's cognitive and metacognitive strategies. There's scaffolding, using technology and flexible grouping. So just to, to go into a bit more detail on a couple of those where it links to cognitive science particularly, um, and just a reminder, those five are approaches where there is a good evidence base that it helps students with SEND in mainstream settings to make additional academic progress. So this is not an evidence base for neurotypical students that we're then extrapolating out. These are from studies that looked at what works for pupils with SEND particularly in terms of high quality teaching. So with explicit instruction, and, and I know that that doesn't just mean rose and shine, but for me, the clearest articulation of it is rose and shine. So if we've got a child with moderate learning difficulties, they're more likely to struggle to bring previous learning into that into into that classroom on a Tuesday. They're less they're less likely to bring Monday's learning or last week's learning or even last term's learning and have that securely in their long term memory and be able to be able to recall, retrieve it quickly so that they can then apply it to, to Tuesday's learning. But actually, with a focus on recalling prior learning, that's going to be really helpful for all pupils and particularly helpful for a pupil with SEND, for example, with moderate learning difficulties. Um, and then when we're introducing new material, well, for a child um, who, who uh, with um, a poor working memory, perhaps um, being overloaded very quickly with the teacher exposition at the front, actually introducing content in small chunks and checking frequently for understanding there, well, that's going to be really helpful for all pupils and particularly useful for pupils with SEND, perhaps a child whose processing speed or working memory um, are are greater challenges for them than than students not on a SEND register. Um, If we then um, give students, um, we question students frequently, well, um, and get feedback often, well, that's going to be really helpful for a child with a speech and language need where we might assume that they've understood something, but there's a receptive language difficulty that means actually you've used um, some vocabulary or a particular structure in your exposition, structure of language in your exposition, that means that then they, they've lost the thread of what you were saying. And by questioning frequently, you're going to pick up on that quickly and then articulate that again in some way. So that focus, I know I, I won't outline every step because I'm sure people you know listening know about explicit instruction, but for me, they're natural partners there. Um, and it's a really good basis for inclusive teaching for students to send. And then cognitive and metacognitive strategies. So if, if we work on the assumption that many pupils with SEND won't have those sort of strategies that feel inbuilt for pupils who may not have SEND, but actually are years of practice and good teaching, aren't they? Um, but actually, they might not have the strategies to um, intuitively think of a hook to something they learned last week that's going to help them with the learning today. 
or may not have a strategy if it's about learning um, a sequence or a pattern to chunk that into into smaller steps. So we teach cognitive strategies. We go, this is how you might remember this. Try and think of this in this way. Um, mnemonics and things are the, the example that, that are in the EEF guidance report. A mnemonic to help something stick. And then metacognition. It's right up there at the top of the teaching and learning toolkit for um, for all students. But it's also a strong evidence base or a good evidence base for people to send. If we help them to think about what do I need to complete this task well? What strategy can I use to help me solve this problem? So there's, a, there's again, we're not looking at learning a language of good teaching and then learning a different language of good teaching for send. Because I think if we were, we'd be in big trouble. I think what, what the reassurance is that the evidence is that teachers already have most of these strategies in their toolbox. And it's about thinking, how do I apply them for pupils with send? Just the last of those five, the EEF's campaign this year around SEND has been called the five a days as something that sort of helps it stick with with teachers and with teaching assistants, hopefully, and the school leaders. Is that explicit instruction, cognitive and medical strategies, scaffolding, using technology and flexible grouping. So scaffolding, that might be I go and check in with a child and I give them a bit of time to try and do the task independently, just as everyone else, because I'm showing them I have high expectations of them. Try and do it on your own. But I also know that I've got a, perhaps a pre-prepared um, visual scaffold that is on the whiteboard for everyone or that is on a child's desk with that's what they need. Um, or it's go and, ha- go and do a bit of reteaching with a pupil or a bit of support or a bit of prompting or have a discussion about the learning, take a few notes on a mini whiteboard for them, leave it with them, and they can still work with a certain amount of independence. So so this, I think the evidence, it should be really reassuring to teachers that it's not go and learn a different language for SEND. It's not go and get a master's in SEND for every teacher. It's about do a, a core of inclusive strategies really well. And then it's about knowing your learners and listening to where there is advice, where the Senko's condensed and the HCP into a few bullet points because an autistic child in year four struggles with certain things in the environment or with their um, or with transitions from one task to the next. There's certain things that are good for them that are related to a specific need. But it's not about teaching five different lessons to pupils who might have five different types of primary need in your classroom. Naylor's Natter the Book, ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Naylor's Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022. Just listening to that and just thinking that's, you know, so reassuring the terms of the links between what makes good teaching and what makes good teaching for pupils with SEND. And obviously for people who are, you know, teaching in classrooms with, you know, a reasonable proportion of students with SEND or perhaps in our case, you know, teaching within those those nurture groups where there's a, a really high proportion of those, those students with SEND, it's, it's really reassuring to think, right, well, the stuff that we're doing with evidence, research-based teaching can be applied you know, um, strategically there. And you, you write about that to that report as well in terms of when it's timing when it came out. That's something that I definitely need to revisit because, you know, mm-hmm. our minds were all slightly elsewhere uh, yes. obviously in, Mar- in March 2020. So yeah. we'll put some links to that um, on the show notes as well. Just just following on from that, this is perhaps one of my personal um, crusades and campaigns, which people who work with me will find quite ironic. This idea that, you know, people at every level within the school 
probably should still be in the classroom. And the reason that I'm saying this is because I've had a bit of a period, Gary, of being out of the classroom, mm. which is fine because obviously we've had a lot to deal with being DSL and person who's doing behavior. You know, a lot of that may need to be done outside of a, of a classroom setting. Um, so, you know, I can understand why that happened. But having moved across to do back to do with teaching and learning, that the first thing that I asked for um, <laughs> was to go back into the classroom. Because mm-hmm. if you're going to be leading on teaching and learning, it's quite difficult to talk to other teachers about teaching and learning if you're not actually doing it yourself. And I just wonder whether, um, and I know that the, the, the role of Senko from the conversations that we've had so far is, is hugely complex, a lot of paperwork, a lot of meetings, a lot of things that you need to do from a statutory and legal point of view as well. But having heard you talk so passionately there about evidence-based teaching and learning, you know, is it a role where there needs to be a certain amount of classroom teaching? And we don't want to be prescriptive on here and say, oh, you must do this, but it might help for other teachers to understand how best to deliver those lessons if they actually see that, you know, in action from the SENCO. Yeah, I, I do. I buy into that totally. And I think, yeah, we can't, we shouldn't be prescriptive about it. And um, in some schools with a very small send register or a very small school, that will require a different time to, you know, a different amount of time each week to someone else who's um, leading a provision with 150 kids on the send register in a big secondary school. So, so clearly that I'm setting a, a number is, is, would be arbitrary. But I think it's essential because I think you need to be able to stand in front of teachers and say, um, this is how I do it in my classroom. And I understand that it's tricky. And I think the worst thing is whenever when the, the trap I really try not to fall into myself is ever going and speaking to a, bu- a, a group of teachers or teaching assistants on behalf of the EEF and saying, it's all really easy. Just do this. Um, here's the five a day. It's, you know, there you go. Problem solved. Because, you know, anything that offers a simple solution is going to be um, the wrong one, clearly. But it's about taking steps to make it easier. But I think, sorry, to answer your question, I think being a classroom teacher reminds you what's hard and reminds you that um, actually if I'm asking everyone to um, photocopy things onto three different colour backgrounds and to, um, you know, just, just it's that it's that problem of providing long lists of strategies for five different pupils. And they might be great strategies, but they become impossible for the teacher to implement them because, um you know, it, it's about doing more things than one than one adult can manage. So, um, and it's about doing more preparation as well. So, that there's a great quote from a book called The Inclusive Classroom by um, Daniel Sobel and Sarah Alston, which is, which I've used many times. But it's something like inclusion will only work if it takes less time, less stress, and less money, or, or less time, less stress, and less resource. I forget the exact quote, but it's 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 right on. I think because where I see these in you know, a beautifully written pupil profiles with eleven strategies on. Well, you know, that's that's okay. That's that's great, and and there'll be a, there may be a parent pushing for that level of detail for every teacher to have. But again, if you're providing things that are unrealistic when you have thirty children, then you need to think about well, well, actually, how can I make it realistic? And and clearly, maintaining a teaching timetable is the is the greatest way to remember what's realistic and the greatest way to show I walk the walk. You know, I, I'm not just telling you what to do. Come and see me. Try it with my classes. And and then when you go into that classroom rather than being the Senko behind a laptop. And I think there are problems in the system that really make Senkos, um, they're really not quite incentivized, but but almost force Senkos to be a laptop Senko. Um, and I think it's such a waste and such a um, uh, misuse of the role. Um, actually, the Senko should be, if they're not teaching themselves, they should spend as much time as possible taking the long way back to their office, stopping in corridors, having little dipping into classrooms, it's not about adding observations all the time, but it's about being a frequent face that teachers just expect you to come in just for a quick, you know, eyes on two or three kids or eyes on one or two things a teacher or TA is doing. 
um, and just to be around school as much as possible and, and, and around classrooms and corridors. I am aware, you know, of the of the pressures on the job that make that hard. But I think there's the way the policy has to shift is to allow Senkos to do more of that and to do more. I'm around children. I'm in contact with parents and carers and I'm supporting staff much more than I'm filling in referrals and paperwork, essential as those may be, for you know, in some cases. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's what the EEF does really, really well. And, you know, the period of short period of time that I was working with the EEF with the research school in Blackpool, you know, when we were leading courses, whether it be something about metacognition, whether it be you know, whatever particular course it was, at least you could say, and I was exactly like you, Gary, I would not say, oh, I'm doing it this way, so therefore that's the best way and you should do it like this. But it did give you that that credibility, that understanding, that appreciation for the role to be able to then engage with teachers where they're at. And I think that's, you know, essential. Obviously, you're you're currently working with the EEF and you, you can you can hear that coming through. I'm sure listeners will be thinking, you know, this is one of the best podcasts that, that we've done because I can hear your experience of that work in school, but also I can hear that you've spoken to lots of different people in lots of different contexts about their school and their children. And it really does come through. And I think, you know, at every level of the school, I think it's beneficial for people to still be in classrooms. And I know, again, I say this every week, people who work at my school will not be listening because why would they? They're sick and tired of listening to me anyway. But if they were, they'll say, well, you only do, you know, one lesson a day and it were you to say that. But at least I've got some kind of understanding and appreciation for it. And if I ever ascend to any higher heights than I currently am, I'll try my best to still be in the classroom because I think yeah. that is where we all start and that's where we all should be. And the clue is in the name, isn't it? It's head teacher. It's yeah. the head teacher. You know, it's it's all of those kind of things. So, sorry, forgive me there for my own personal crusade about everybody. No. Thanks. Okay, then. Right. Last couple of questions, if we can, Gary. I'm just conscious. Uh, yeah, we'd like please. to keep it to an hour if we if we can do that because it's good good for the kind of commute time. So, talking about pastoral, and you mentioned at the beginning about your kind of pastoral background and you've done some of those jobs in school, haven't you, in terms of head of year. Mm. So, you know, how can senkos and this is something that perhaps again it's just my experience doesn't happen enough how can senkos work with pastoral staff for the kind of big picture for, for children and students mm. so so i try and in the book i try and condense it to three things and then you know i expand a bit on those three things but i think the three headlines for me in terms of how a senko can try and work with pastoral staff is to communicate well to find solutions together and then to use them for intervention so some, so clearly a lot of things are very um, context specific, aren't they? And primary colleagues might be going pastoral staff, you know, that we wish. Um, and it may be that there is one sort of learning mentor who works across the school or, you know, there'd be different um, in different size schools. Different That means different things, doesn't it? Um, but firstly, those communicate well. So it's important for children with SEND, for people to understand their needs. And if you've got a head of year having conversations with, in, in fact, the heads of year often or pastoral staff will often be diff dipping into class, won't they, and going and picking up things instantly. So it's about knowing who's on the SEND register, including who has an EHCP. If that person, the pastoral staff member, goes into a class, what should they be seeing? And some pastoral staff will be teachers and some won't. So when, for those who aren't, we're not asking them to be sort of, you know, teaching and learning leads, with, but we're saying what should they see in terms of even where a child is sitting in the classroom, how they're communicated with, what one or two resources might be with them at the desk, for example. So if you can share, if you can communicate those things really well, that's really helpful. Likewise, um, in terms of parental communication, um, if you have an ally, ally is the wrong word, it makes it sound like we're against parents. I don't mean that at all. But I mean, if you have someone on the pastoral team who knows what you're doing and trying to support, how, how you're supporting, what you're trying to achieve for that pupil's end, 
if that head of year or pastoral staff member knows that as well as you, that's going to be really helpful in any conversation with parents. It's going to mean that um, it's uh, it's aligned what you're saying and what that pastoral member is saying. And and too often, I think pastoral staff through no fault of their own will be saying, well, do you, want, do you want a call back from the Senko to talk through that? And actually, the more we can go, there's a shared ownership here of SEND, um, the better. So it's communicating well, including what your current priorities are. So if we you know, want our pupils with SEND to all be um, accessing certain opportunities, attending certain, att- attending an extracurricular club, um, having some sort of, you know, having an appropriate reading book uh, to their reading level on their desk. Actually, any of those things, it's it's okay if you as a Senko sort of own that priority. But if you can get a shared ownership of that priority, well, that's fantastic, isn't it? More people, more eyes and ears, and more people trying to to, to carry that in what they do. Um, so communicating well for me is about, you know, who's on the send register? What's their primary need? You know, who's an autistic child? Who's got a social, emotional, mental health need, etc. cetera? Uh, and then what should they be looking out for in class? And what should they be thinking about in their conversations with pupils if something goes wrong? If something goes wrong, what we don't want is that pastoral member of staff to go, is the Senko free? Because that Senko, as I say, might be teaching, might be doing other things. Um, but actually, should we should be empowering pastoral staff to be able to deal with these things themselves. So what are the essentials of communication for an autistic child, knowing that all autistic children will be different? But what are those sort of shared characteristics? Well, it might be that I want to anticipate the meltdown before we get there. It might be that I want to provide them with some space and time before I overload with language and try and solve the problem straight away. We want the Senko to be supporting all pastoral staff with those things. So to do that, the Senko needs to communicate well. We then want to find solutions together. So often, often I think what we want to achieve is the same thing. Um, so if the Senko goes, what am I, you know, what do I want to help this child with? Well, they have, um, they're anxious in the school environment or they are quite, you know, oppositional to teacher instructions. Actually, what the Senko wants to achieve for and with that young person will be the same as what the pastoral staff member wants to achieve, which is to help them to succeed more in classrooms, to have fewer sort of behavioural blow-ups, to um, have better relationships with peers and adults. So actually, if we want to achieve the same thing, then we need to find those solutions together. Um, and so for me, that means um, scheduled regular meetings that are not about, um, you know, it's not getting on your soapbox. It's not um, going around the houses with discussion for two or three hours. It's about really clear solution focused meetings that are also realistic. We're not trying to talk about 100 children in an hour, but we're going these are our five, 10 pupils who are on both our radars or at least should be on both our radars. Um, let's have a very sort of quick headlines of where of what's going on for them at the moment and then what solutions should we try next and then we revisit that in let's say a fortnight so if I were a Senko I'd be trying to set up that um, that sort of system where whoever the pastoral staff member or members are I'll be going I'm gonna have a really sort of solutions focused meeting with them every couple of weeks so so little and often about key pupils where we just need to both be up to date all the time and both be going but reflecting sort of frequently on is this working? What do I need to do? Finally, it's about intervention, about where, um, you know, it doesn't have to be the Senko and their team that puts on interventions for students with SEND in, for example, study skills or social skills or emotional regulation, circle of friends, those kind of things. Actually, it could be that there's a, a pastoral member of staff who's um, brilliant at that sort of thing, at those sort of interpersonal skills of young people, about helping people think about revision, about helping them think about how they communicate with each other and how they develop friendships. So it's we, we don't want 
things operating in isolation from each other or overlapping or we're both trying to do essentially the same thing. So I think it's about going where I know this people need something. Does it have to be me, the senker who does it? Who Or can it be the apostle member of staff? And expanding that to the form tutors as well. So if a child really needs a daily check-in, well, I'm a senko really busy. My teacher assistants are all timetabled up to their eyeballs. But they see their form tutor every single day. Uh, so we're going to have a, we're going to set up a regular check in, which just means no extra time needs to be found. But at some point within the tutor period every day, we go uh, here's, you know, it might be on, on a sort of rating scale or, you know, one to five. How are we doing? How are we going to get you from a three to a four? Or it could be just a, you know, just a hello. How are you? And, you know, how was your um, how's your day so far? So whatever, whatever it might look like, let's not underestimate the importance and value of form tutors who see their pupils every day as well. Again, Gary, so many great points there. And I was just reflecting while you were talking about one of the meetings that, that we used to do, which was one of the best meetings that we had, which had the snappy title of, it was called NBAP, which sounds like a song by Hanson from the 90s. Um, but it essentially was the, the nurture groups that we've got, like I said, 7 to 11, the bridge provision, which is students that, um, you know, at the risk of, of exclusions, uh, an alternative provision for students that, you know, Perhaps there's students with EHCP, so some of the alternative provisions might be therapy-based, for example, um, that they go out and do it at, at other places. But having the SENCO and the team on those meetings gave a really different perspective for the heads of year, the pastoral staff, because obviously they're dealing with a huge amount of perhaps behaviours. They're also dealing with some safeguarding, some complex safeguarding issues, but perhaps they didn't have always the oversight of what the students are like in the classrooms and what kind of provisions mm. they needed. And I think that those meetings were, were hugely beneficial. They're exactly like you said, Gary, we didn't have, they weren't really long meetings, but they were to talk about students and kind of join up the thinking across the team so that if there is a phone call from the parent of one of those students within those provisions, it can be taken by any of the key kind of stakeholders in their education because we're all across a lot of what's going on for, for that student in, in, in their education and in their life more widely as well. Yeah, but I think sometimes the problem with those meetings is they they miss the, the six hours every day bit. So they're really good at going um, about how are we working with the parent. They're really good at going which external agencies are referring to or linking up with, how are we supporting the family as a whole? And that, all that, not to underplay any of that, but that child is hopefully in a classroom for six lessons a day or, or whatever it is on the timetable. Um, so actually what are the teachers doing to support that child every day? And I think the Senko being a key part of those meetings can often, you know, as a qualified teacher, will often make sure that that bit isn't missed, that we don't go straight to who do we refer to or how do what we're saying to family, but actually what's working in lessons at the moment um, and how do we get more teachers doing that thing that's working for these people where it is working, even though it's not working in others. So I think having teacher representation and the senka represented in those meetings is essential for just going it's not only about what we do outside the classroom it's absolutely essential what we do inside the classroom as well thank you yes right last question gary if we can before we signpost people to where they can get the book and and that kind of thing is about ofsted now i'm not asking this question because obviously you know we're not necessarily um doing things for ofsted and you know ofsted can be hugely supportive can't they in terms of you know i think about the the evidence and the research summary that daniel merce produced for ofsted has been hugely beneficial so there's a lot a lot of good things um come as part of Ofsted but obviously if you're a new person if you are that lone senko then you will have one eye to what will Ofsted ask when they come in what will they need to see so what does the Ofsted framework say about send okay so the, there aren't too many references explicitly to send um but there are lots more references to all pupils and I think that's where you know send is the unwritten thing in quite a few of those statements because it's talking about all pupils so in a nutshell 
um, the school needs to be ambitious for all pupils. And we talk about broad and balanced curricula, don't we? It needs to be ambitious for all pupils and to meet the needs of pupils within that. So for me, it's it's best summed up visually by the sort of weighing scales, where on the one side, we're aiming high. And on the other side, we're putting the support in place that means that that high ambition can be successful in reality. So that, that happens through that inclusive approach, doesn't it? So, so having, as we discussed earlier, that core of inclusive teaching strategies, approaches, um, evidence-informed where possible, that mean we can aim high, but we're confident in the work we're doing to support that um, that high ambition. And then we're adapting. Um, we're really, refer- we're sort of A, getting really good feedback all the time from our pupils through things like questioning um, to know how they're getting this. And then, um, and then, be we're we're reflective enough to go what should i try next in the next task next lesson next week next term in order to try and try and increase the success of that so um you know pupils with send need to be achieving exceptionally well is the out is the statement for an outstanding school um and so the way to get that as if if a classroom teacher is listening to this it's about having high ambition and putting the right support in place. How do you know if you're putting the right support in place? It's having that small number of evidence-based approaches, and then it's about knowing your pupils. And that might that doesn't mean pouring over lengthy documents, hopefully. It means having a really good understanding of a brief document and then reflecting frequently on how is this working for all pupils in my class, including pupils with SEND. If I was a SENCO or a senior leader listening to this, I'd be I'd, the thing to know is that it's about whole school ownership of SEND that's most important. So SEND won't be a deep dive, or at least the last time I read something from Offset, it said SEND won't be a deep dive. Sometimes these things change, but SEND will feature in, in deep dives and will be an explicit focus in some. So it needs to be, especially all leaders, all, mid, all middle and senior leaders, but actually all colleagues, need to know what's our sort of vision, values, ethos, pedagogy around SEND, what, what's the key lines for me in terms of curriculum around SEND, not just that I can, not just that I can spout them, but also that I can, you know, show them in my teaching and in my leadership. Um, but it's whole school ownership. Everyone needs to, you know, if you're asked that question as a, a head of Key Stage 2, talk to me about the SEND context and SEND outcomes, SEND vision here. Everyone needs to be able to know those things. So I try and give trainings to schools that within my trust, the trust I work in, around it's not just the SENCO. Once upon a time, it would have been just a chat with the SENCO. And now it's really runs through everything. And the chat with the SENCO is, is a part, but only one part of um, of finding out the SEND, what's going on for SEND there. So, um, And there's more in the in the Ofsted handbook, of course, about you know how do they involve parents, include all pupils, track progress. How do they address the additional safeguarding vulnerability that can happen when pupils have SEND? Um, so there's, you know, there's finer detail, of course, in the handbook that guides the inspectors. But in terms of the framework, it's about primarily about, do you know, there's, there's a lovely quote from Amanda Spielman, which is sort of, I want to know, um, I want to be able to see what do pupils know? Um, how do they know you know that? And what do they do about it when they don't know that? So, you know, when there are gaps, essentially, what do schools do about it? And so that's just as true for people to send as without. Do we know where pupils are? Are we meeting those needs? What do we do when pupils aren't meeting those needs? And that's not all about a TA. It's not all about intervention after school. It's about those adaptations we make that are live often in the classroom about getting good feedback. Great stuff. Thank you, Gary. Right. It's been an absolute delight 
to speak to you today, honestly. And I say this every week in terms of my own professional development, but I feel like I have learned so much in the last one hour and three minutes that I'm going to take away, use, and that's on top of obviously, you know, reading through the book as well. So really appreciate that. And I'm sure that everyone who's listening will echo that in terms of the, the value of this episode. If listeners who have listened to this and think, right, I want to go and get the book, tell us where we can get the book from. Are you doing any um, talks about the book? Are you going out and presenting to anybody about this? And lastly, where can listeners find a little bit more about you and maybe get in touch as well? Thanks, Phil. Yeah, so um, the book's um, quite clearly on Amazon, as all these things are, but it's a John Cat book. So it's available from the John Cat bookshop um, and it's also available um, uh, on Amazon um, and it's the loan send co send with a D um, as I think the way things have moved to towards SEN and the D the disabilities bit in there so the loan send co um, and I also write a blog and there's you know a link to the to buying the book on there and the blog is sendmatters.co.uk so I've written about you know um, things that teachers should do mostly aimed at senkos but also some aimed at teachers parents um, and so if people want a bit more sendmatters.co.uk and there's an email address on there for people to get in touch as well if they'd like to contact me with things about you know could you help us with this or talk to us about that very happy to receive offers of, of you know that kind of thing so um so yeah it's been a real pleasure talking about the book with you today phil and really uh, you know it's my favorite subject to talk about clearly um and it's lovely to hear that that you think that people will, will value some of the discussions we've had today so thank you so much Natter, just talking to teachers talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at pna 1977 on twitter Natter, just talking to teachers 